second chapter of the gospel according to Luke, and we'll look at verses 25 through 30. That's Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, and we'll read through verse 30. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and, all the, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to, in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed the Lord and said, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I want to begin with a statement that I recently read on a blog. I wish I could remember the author, uh, but I can't, so I don't want to deprive them of their credit. But in a blog that I wrote, there was a statement that captured my attention. He said, waiting is not a period of idleness. On the contrary, waiting is a movement from something to something more. And I chewed on that for a while, and I thought about it. Waiting is not, it's not a period of idleness, but rather waiting is itself a movement from something to something more. Now, from a Christian perspective, waiting really begins with two things, because certainly that is the theme that we see here with Simeon. He is expressing an anticipation and a waiting. So from a Christian perspective, waiting begins with two foundational things. One, it begins with the conflict, the disease, the disorder, and the destruction that is the consequence of Adam's sin. So it begins there because God had issued a statement to man that the day you eat, you shall surely die. And from the time that Adam and Eve ate of that which they were forbidden to eat, there became a disintegration where there was integrity. There became corruption where there was purity. There was disorder, there were distractions, and things, as a writer once put it, began to fall apart. In that sense, what Adam and Eve experienced when they encountered the Lord after their eating is to a very real, in a very real way, they experienced a sense of divine judgment. They, they experienced condemnation. Uh, Meredith Klein, among other Old Testament scholars, have, have made the point that the word that's translated oftentimes when we, when we read in Genesis 3 that the Lord came to Adam in the cool of the day. We think of that in terms, outside of Miami anyways, we think of that in terms of the evening, when it gets cool in the evening time. And so we think of it as dusk. But the actual Hebrew word that's translated cool is is ruach, which could also mean wind or spirit. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the spirit. 
And Meredith Klein makes the point that a proper understanding of that phrase would not be the cool of the day, but rather the day, the spirit of the day, or the spirit of judgment. One of the reasons that Adam hid and, and quaked in fear was because he was ex experiencing, and by the way, God wasn't walking in the garden. The always present God was making his presence felt in a different way. Because now Adam, being at odds with the God who created him, is guilty of doing what God forbid him to do. And in that sense, what he has experienced is a sense of judgment and dread. And it's at that moment that we see the second thing. So in other words, at initially because of, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, they have put themselves in a different position and posture before God. And all of the created order is actually beginning to unwind because of their single act, which is why we speak of sin as being cosmic in its effect and in its range. And then God speaks a word to them. So it's in this state of, of condemnation, it's in this state of disintegration, and in this state of corruption that God speaks a word. He does speak a word of judgment. He reminds Adam that you'll still eat, you'll still earn your, your bread from the land, but you will now have thistles, therefore the curse. Eve, you'll bear children, but it'll be in child, it'll, it'll be in great, in, in great pain but you'll still bear children. That's a word of judgment. And then there will be friction between the husband and wife that didn't previously exist until they sinned. And it's in that, that, that space that God speaks. And he speaks and he gives a word of hope. In fact, the very fact that God tells Adam, you will work, and he tells Eve, you will bear children, that means they're going to live. And then God gives a word in Genesis 3.15. And he promises that the woman would bear a seed. And that's the second part of the context that establishes the concept of Christian waiting. God says that the woman will bear a child who will ultimately be the remedy for all that their sin has disrupted and all that sin has brought under corruption. Now, the replacement, God, God speaks further and, and, and gives this word, of, this word of promise, so to speak, in Genesis 3.15, which we call the first announcement of the gospel. And it's at that point that Christian waiting begins. And in that instance, waiting is moving from condemnation to fulfillment. And what the Lord does is, to further this promise, the, he gives a replacement for Adam and Eve's fig leaf coverings. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, and he fills or he covers them, he covers them with animal skins. And again, this is a movement from promise to expectation. Waiting is not idle. Waiting is moving from something to something more. So initially they wait for condemnation and they get pardoned. Now that they have, given, have been given a promise of hope and a promise of redemption, they are waiting for fulfillment. And what God does is he gives them, in verse 21 of chapter 3, 
coverings to indicate that there is more to come. And with the covering of these animal skins, what we see is a movement from expectation of condemnation towards the hope of restoration, glorification, and reconciliation. Now here's what we know on this end of redemptive history. Christ is the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3.15. And I think it would be safe to say that everything from that promise in Genesis 3.15 to the actual birth of Christ is the progressive unveiling of what that promise actually contains. And not only in terms of what the promise itself contains, but also why the promise is necessary. God makes a promise, and he fulfills that promise in the person and work of Christ. And as that promise is progressively unveiled, we see more and more of what the promise itself contains and why we need what God himself has promised and what is fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Therefore, throughout redemptive history, as God's people look to him by faith, they rest in his provisions even as they wait for more of a revelation of what he himself has promised. For that reason, it should come as no surprise that at the time of Jesus' birth, that there would be anticipation and waiting. It is captured throughout most of the gospel records. Even in John's gospel, we have hints that the people are not unaware that there would be a Messiah that is coming. In fact, the very phrase that, that Simeon uses, the consolation of Israel, is in conjunction with the coming Messiah. Messiah is a more full-blown uh, category for the promise, the seed promise in Genesis 3.15. By the time God initially makes the promise of a seed that would be born through the woman, and by the time we get to the birth of Christ, we know more and more about that seed that would be born. We know that he would be a king. We know that he would be a prophet. We know that he would be, he would be, uh, he would be a leader of God's people. In fact, the ruler of the entire universe. We know that. We know that he would restore God's people. He would, he would be a priest in the presence of God. He would be the ultimate prophet who would speak on behalf of God. All of this is expected by the time. Now, it, by the way, it's not understood fully and it's not fully embraced raced that way by Adam and Eve when God made the promise. But progressively, he unveils what that seed of the woman would be so that by the time we get to the birth of Jesus, we have with the prophetic writings, we have through the history of God's redeemed people an anticipation that one would be born who would fulfill everything that God promised in Genesis 3.15. And even the content of that promise has seems to have grown in size. They understand that he who would come that fulfills that, that, that promise made by God would be the righteousness of God. He would rule and guide the people of God. He would, he would reverse all of the effects of the fall. That's what he would do. In fact, 
the writers, of the, the prophetic writers, have, have couched the coming of the seed of the woman in two advents. He will come in humility, and then he will come in judgment. But yet, the people waited. And that sense of expectation and anticipation is what we see throughout the, the early pages of the New Testament gospel books. Uh, Luke, Matthew, John, all of them have expectations. And so it's not uncommon for them to reflect the expectation of the people. Even when Jesus at Caesarea Philippi asked the question, who do men say that I am? The questions that they gave weren't when we, when I remember hearing as a child when people would say Elijah or one of the other prophets. I always thought, well, are they saying that, that Jesus was the reincarnation of, of Elijah? No, what they were saying in essence is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures concerning a one who is like Elijah that would come in the name of the Lord. So there is expectation. And certainly the one place where we see this, this, this sense of anticipation and expectation is, is in the gospel of Luke. Luke, by the way, his gospel is very important, I would say, from a number of vantage points. One of them, from, at least from the vantage point of apologetics. The, thing of, the good thing about Luke's gospel is that it's grounded in human history. Luke, Luke is, is the one who tells us that the time about the, the things that took place when Jesus was born. He says, you remember the, the census that was taken back in such and such a time? Remember when Herod was king and when, when so-and-so was the governor over this region? Then that's when the baby was born. He couches it all in human history. But, and especially in the first two chapters of his gospel, he makes it clear that those who were the people of God, those who worshipped him according to the Old Testament scriptures, expected something. And so there is a sense of anticipation. And this is especially true, as I mentioned, in Luke's gospel. In, 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 John, in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79... We have the prophecies of John, the, John the, the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. And in that, again, he speaks, he understands the significance of his son's birth, but he understands it in conjunction with the coming Messiah. And I love the way that prophecy ends where he says, so that we can, so that our feet could walk in a pathway of peace. And so he understands there is an expectation. And, and not only John the Baptist, but we see later in chapter 2 in verses 36 through 38, we have the prophetess Anna. And look at what it says about Anna when, when uh, she prophesied concerning uh, the birth of the Savior. Beginning in verse 38 or verse 36, it says, And there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was uh, from, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up, or, or and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
there's a sense of anticipation. They were waiting for something. They were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise and they knew that the seed promise of Genesis 3.15, they knew that the seed promise given to Abraham would have a consummate fulfillment in one who would come in the name of the Lord. But yet I've chosen to focus not on Zechariah and not on Anna. I've chosen to focus on the words of Simeon. Simeon, one of the reasons for this is because Simeon was neither a priest like Zechariah, nor was he a prophet like Anna. He, didn't, he wasn't given over to the service of the Lord, and he was not commissioned as, a, as, as one who spoke on behalf of the Lord. But Simeon is described simply as a righteous and devout man. In other words, He's an everyday guy. He's a blue-collar worker. He's, he's a guy who happens to believe in the promises of God. And he's described not only as being a devout and righteous man, but he was described as one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And it's at this point we are told that, that, that the Spirit ministers to him and tells him that the Messiah has come. And as a, as a time frame, this is roughly eight days after the birth of Jesus. The reason we can say that is because it is said that, that, that Mary was performing the rituals according to the law, and the rituals according to the law, not only for the firstborn son, there were offerings that she was to give in conjunction with the Mosaic law because of the firstborn child or the firstborn male, but she was having Jesus circumcised. And the circumcision was to come eight days after the birth, which puts a little, uh, puts, puts a little more drama to the context of Jesus in his early days. They had to travel from Bethlehem now we talk about the travel to Bethlehem, a woman ready to give birth, but now we're talking about a travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem within a week. And this is without, this is without taxis, this is without airplanes, or even Greyhound buses. They had to travel a difficult journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem in order to meet the requirements of the law, and have their newborn son circumcised on the eighth day. One of the, the reasons this is of significance is because we can't allow room for them to say, well, you know, they, it, it was almost eight days because we are told in, in, in Paul's writings in Galatians that Jesus was born under the law so that he could fulfill all of the law for all of those for whom they are, are, are who are under the law. And so he had to fulfill everything that the law required of him as a Jew and even everything the law requires of us simply as being image bearers of God. Now it's my contention that the sentiments expressed in the words of Simeon should be our guide even as we anticipate and wait for the second coming of Christ. In other words, what Simeon says here as he is waiting, and remember, waiting is moving, is a movement from something towards something more. 
All of the children of Israel in the past were waiting on a fuller revelation of what God had given or of, of what God had promised concerning the gift of salvation and the gift of a savior. And we also are waiting. We are at a different point in redemptive history. They were waiting for the birth of the savior. We're waiting for the return. And so when we celebrate the advent and the birth of Christ, it is with the expectation and the anticipation of his return. Now it should also be noted that the resurrection of Jesus is what makes all of this matter. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised, then none of this matters. So Jesus' resurrection is the exclamation point and the underscoring of everything that he said and he did. We would not be celebrating his birth if he were not raised. We would still know about him in history, but we would not be celebrating his birth if he had not been raised from the dead. But see, he has been raised. So therefore, we want to use the sentiment and the language of, of Simeon as he anticipates the birth of the Savior, even as we anticipate his return. Four things that we'll touch on briefly. First place, or the first thing. In verse 26, the emphasis is on the spirit. The spirit is the one we are told that, that, informs, um, that informs Simeon that the child, that everything that he had waited for is now fulfilled. In verse 26, and it says, and, um, or, or, back in, or back up in, verse, beginning in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and as it and, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That phrase is important in verse 26. He until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And I would the, the first observation is this: it is the spirit that awakens and attaches believers to the fact that Jesus is the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Christ. Now, one thing this presupposes is that when we speak of Christ, it's not his last name. Jesus, he's, his, his first name wasn't Jesus and his last name, Christ. He was, he was Jesus, son of Joseph. But, but his Christ, Christos, the Greek term Christos, is, is really, it's, it's the, the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. And the idea is that the Messiah was one who was appointed by God himself. And what, what the Spirit makes known to Simeon is that the Messiah... The one who comes in the name of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, spoken of by Isaiah, the one who is promised to the people of God, bringing healing in his, in his, in his wings, it is none other than Jesus. And here's our point, that just as the Spirit, it is necessary for the Spirit to reveal to uh, Simeon that this boy Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah, no one says Paul in 1 Corinthians, can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the Spirit is the one who awakens us 
to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is God's promised and prophesied Messiah. Him and not another. We read in the book of Acts that when the disciples had been arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus and they, the religious leaders were trying to figure out what to do. And, and they were saying, in essence, that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. So one of the, they went to Gamal, who was one of the, the, the respected and revered teachers in Jerusalem. And he says, well, you remember when so-and-so came and said he was the one? He says, and, and over 500 people went and followed him out into the desert. And he wasn't the one. And that faded away. And then he went on to say, you remember when another one came and said he was the one and everyone just knew he was the one. In fact, even during the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, John indicates this, that, that people were wondering because John the Baptist's public ministry predates the public ministry of Jesus. When Jesus, before he begins his public preaching ministry, John the Baptist is already preaching. And what, Jesus, what John is preaching, he's preaching redemption and he is preaching in the power of the Spirit and people were wondering if he was the one. But no, he wasn't. And so what we see is that the fact that Jesus is the, 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 the Lord's Christ is something that can't be learned in books. We can learn that Jesus of Nazareth lived we can even learn from the history books that the story goes that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and was seen by over 500 people after his death. He, they saw him, but that is not enough to convince the fallen heart that he is the Messiah of God. That, brothers and sisters, is the work of the Spirit. We can, we can talk about Jesus and the fact that he lived and he walked we can read the books and see what he did. But the only ones that are able to cry out at the level of the heart that Jesus is the one that is promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the one that was promised, the seed that was promised to Abraham. Jesus is the prophet that Moses said that will be raised up from among the brethren. Jesus is the suffering servant, the righteous servant. Jesus is the son of David. That has to be revealed to us. By the Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in apologetics. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. But once you've answered the questions and once you've given the reasons for your hope, that doesn't mean people are going to believe it. No one can believe that Jesus is the Savior unless they are convinced by the Holy Spirit. And I would imagine it's, it would be just as difficult. Can you imagine looking at a baby and seeing in that baby the fullness of God's promises? You can't see that no more than on this end of history that we can look at a crucified man, a man who was, 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 was really executed publicly and say that he is our Savior. We can't see it unless we are convinced and renewed by the Holy Spirit, and to be able to look to him for the wholeness of our salvation. Simeon goes into the temple 
And the Spirit reveals to Simeon who knew what God had promised and he knew and he trusted in God's promise and he knew that even if he died before the Messiah would be born that his life was redeemed by God but God allowed him to see because the Holy Spirit awakened him. And look at the timing of God. We have no indication that Simeon is a priest so he just happened to be in the temple just around the time that Mary and Joseph bring their eight-day-old son in to be circumcised, and the Spirit convicts him he's the one. So the Spirit, it is the Spirit that awakens us and attaches us to the fact that Jesus is the Lord's Christ. Here's the second thing. The birth of Jesus, the child, the birth of the child Jesus is the centerpiece of the substance of God's word of promise. Because Simeon says, I've seen him according to your word. What you've, not what, what, what he lived on until he actually saw the Savior. He trusted God's word. Brothers and sisters, there is no hope and there is no help and there is no spiritual empowerment, and there is no spiritual anything apart from Jesus. Everything that the Father has for us is wrapped up in his word, which is wrapped up in Christ. That's why we have not done justice to the scriptures if we have preached them without Christ as the center and the substance. Simeon says, this is according to your word, O, o Lord. He says um, in verse 27, now, the, uh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Because what God has promised to those that look to him by faith is peace that allows them to die knowing that there is life beyond their physical existence. But here's the point. What God has promised in his word is fulfilled in Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 that all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Now notice the, the, the conjunction here. What the spirit reveals is what the father has promised. And what the father has promised is located in Jesus. Therefore I would argue. We can talk all day long about what we felt and the Spirit did this, that, or the other. There is no movement of the Spirit without a revelation of the person and work of Christ. And everything that God has for us, that's why we don't need someone to sneak in with another private word for us. Everything that God has for us is in Jesus. And everything that the Spirit reveals, all of the work of the Spirit towards us and for us, as Paul says in Romans, that we are, we, we are sealed by His Spirit. And it is the Spirit that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. And it is the Spirit that connects us to the finished work of Christ. So therefore, the birth of the child, Jesus, is the centerpiece and the substance of God's word of promise to His people. There is no promise related to our salvation that is not connected to the person and work of Christ. That's why when we come to faith in him, we don't labor for another experience. Everything that we have, says Peter, everything necessary for life and godliness is given to us in Jesus. 
all of God's promises find their yea and amen in him. He is the centerpiece of the scriptures and he is the substance of what God gives to us in his word of promise. Here's a third thing. And we see this particularly in verse 30 where Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is a, 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 an articulation of the fact that the salvation of our souls is accomplished outside of us by another. It is, first off, it emanates from someone else. I have seen, he says, your salvation. Salvation is promised by God. Salvation is planned by God. And salvation is performed by the Son of God. Everything that God requires of us is met in him. Every penalty for our sin is laid upon him. And so can you imagine what, 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 is, going through, what is going through Simeon's mind? He sees this beautiful child and he knows that this is the fulfillment of God's promise. But he also knows that this child that the scripture says he held in his arms as he holds this child, what he realizes that this child is the Lamb of God. He knows the scriptures. He knows where, where, where Abraham took Isaac and was ready to bring down the, the, the rod on Isaac or bring down the, the knife and sacrifice him to the Lord. And he knows the, the word of God where the angel says, stay your hand. And When Isaac asked the question of his father, Lord, I, I see all of the instruments of sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide. Simeon, knowing those scriptures, also knew that the child, the, the sweet and cuddly child that he's holding in his arms is the one that the father would not stay his hand from but he would pour out on him all of the wrath that was due unto Simeon. My eyes have seen your salvation. Brothers and sisters, salvation is not first and foremost felt and experienced by us subjectively. Salvation is first and foremost accomplished for us outside of us subjectively by another. God has met, or, or in Christ, we have one who has fulfilled every jot and tittle of God's law. In Christ, we have the innocent one, the one, and we see it vividly displayed in the animal sacrifices, and we know how harsh it was, but look at how, 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 how illustrative those, those sacrifices were, and especially with this scapegoat where the priest would take one goat and put his hand on his, on his head and pronounce all of the sins of the people and let the goat go free. And then he would take the other goat, pronounce all of the sins of the people on that goat and sacrifice him on the altar. Jesus is both of those goats. He is the one that was slain on the altar and he's the one that after his resurrection was set free. 
what, what Simeon sees in this baby is all of the theology of salvation that he has read about, all of the content of the worship that he has experienced in his many years. And he recognizes that salvation is of the Lord and salvation will be accomplished by the Lord's Christ. And what I'm holding in my hands right now is the Lord's Christ. I do appreciate the Lord's table. I do appreciate and I do believe that is more than a memorial when we come to the table. God through our faith is reminding us that the words, the very words of Jesus himself, this is my body which was broken for you. And this is my blood which was shed for you. And so every time we receive of the Lord's table, it is a refreshment to my spirit that all that God has required of me has been met. And all of God's wrath has been met. But can you imagine Simeon before the, the, the baby even becomes a toddler is able to hold in his arms the flesh and blood that brings about our salvation. He says, I can die in peace now because my physical eyes have seen your salvation. But here's a fourth and final thing. Simeon says, therefore, I can live in peace because I know that you have fulfilled your promise in the birth of this child. And brothers and sisters, I, he says, I can, I can die in peace now. I, I can go. And it's not that he wouldn't have died in peace before Christ was born. He died trusting, but now he has died. He gets to see before he dies. He doesn't see the wounds. He doesn't see Christ forsaken by those that were around him. He doesn't see him on the cross. He doesn't even see him after the resurrection. But he sees him in his mother's arms and he's able to hold him because he knows now that there is nothing that the father will not give him because he's given to him his Messiah. Now here's how I see this as we wait. And, and remember, waiting is not a period of idleness. But rather, waiting is a matter of us, of us, you know, as, as we, we move from one, uh, from, from, from something to something more. And so what, what, what he experiences, what he moves from is a period of waiting and he moves to the point of seeing. But now that we are in Christ who has been raised, who has been, or excuse me, who has been offered up as a sacrifice, who has been crucified, and who has been raised, we also are waiting. And I would argue that what Simeon saw as a baby, we will see as a man. And here's what we know, that we can live in peace and we can die in peace because the promises of God have been met in a baby that was born in Bethlehem 
circumcised in Jerusalem, crucified on Golgotha, and was raised from a grave. Our Savior has come, and we're waiting. We have this, this faith, and we have this hope, and we're waiting. And just as the Lord allowed Simeon to see his Savior, he will grant to everyone who has faith in him that we will see him too. Now, here's the interesting thing. We, the Spirit is what revealed to Simeon that the baby is the Savior. When we see him, every eye shall see him. And those who have been attached to him by the Spirit, there will be no mistake who he is. Thank God for the incarnation. Thank God for the crucifixion. Thank God for the resurrection. And thank God for the promise of his return. So let us wait, trusting God's word as enlightened by the Spirit, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God Almighty. Let's pray.